There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Ah, youth. We all remember those times. Our first flirtation. That time when we fell deeply, passionately in love with an opera singer. Ah, that time when we stole our dress from our dressing room. What can one say? It is a fact of life, is it not? But perhaps the first love can get away from you. We are blind because we are young. We do not see the punks and the thugs in the peripheral. We are unaware of the pimps and enforcers of that thing we call fromage. I mean life. What? Zut alors! The crepe Suzette. The egoist. And do not forget la crevette. Towering over all are the shadows of opportunity. Looming like an eternity, forcing us to make choices that will inevitably lead us to Max Mike movies. Oh, <laughs> Francais. Oh. The series Walk the Dark Street. The movie Diva. The early 80s French film that might or might not be considered film noir, which is the subject of this series. But who knows more about the French or noir than Max Strike Me with a Baguette Levine? No one, I say, but what say he? Uh, we are all born astride the grave. <laughs> Don't forget to smoke. I can't I can't see you through all the Galois smoke. <laughs> and I, I'm that striped shirt wearing, beret toting Francophile, Mike Simpson Luce. That's a deeper look it up, kids. <laughs> We have got a lot of fries to French this week, but before we get to rendering duck fat, we got to do this. Poll question. Last week, the question most on our minds was, does film noir work best in black and white, or does color not make a difference? There were opinions, yes, precious, but you had them, but now they're ours. Well, okay, not really. No, uh, no, here they no. be. <laughs> Matt McStravick was up first with, quote, the style is in the writing, ultimately, though noir obviously suggests a lighting factor. Though late-century film noir was labeled as crime thriller, I feel that attempt at distancing may have been less out of trying to differentiate and more to avoid the inevitable, and lazy, comparison to 30s, 50s noir, end quote. Hmm, interesting. Thanks, Matt. Wow. Next, Adam Mark weighed in with some choice words. Quote, I think film noir is by definition black and white. Film mm. noir overcame the limits of black and white film by placing an emphasis on silhouette, shadow, cigarette smoke, and other things that suggested atmosphere. Mm. Film noir is also inherently cerebral, relying on narration to give exposition and contribute to the mood that might otherwise just be a dull shot of a person walking through a room or down a street. <laughs> just love mm. the idea that noir fixed boredom in cinema. <laughs> Someone's always up to something in film noir, and it's harder to portray that in Technicolor. Film noir is also inherently dark, pessimistic, gritty. The move to color was accompanied by an emphasis on joy, light, happiness. Think Oklahoma, 1955. Prefer not to, but... Poor <clears throat> Judd is dead. Yeah, joy, <laughs> light, yeah. That's not all the film. Anyway, he continues, An in-color film can be dark, angsty, foreboding, like Bonnie and Clyde, 1967, but mm. no one would call that film noir. I'm sure some mm. in-color films sneak into the genre, but the norm is definitely black and white, end quote. Well, thanks, Adam. Yeah. Nate Castle offered, quote, I think it's neither here nor there, end quote. I don't oh, get I it. 
see what you... Yeah, thanks, Nate. Okay. <laughs> Val Kuhn's? Val... Val Kilmer? Val Kuhn footsteps. Val Kuhn's Q something. Wrote, quote, I prefer black and white. It adds to the starkness of the stories. Makes the desperation that much more desperate, end quote. Well, can't deny that. Mm. Thanks, Val. Angelo Patsalis commented simply, quote, black and white, end quote. Well, stark answer. Wow. Thanks, Angelo. Dave! Dave! Had a few things to say, as he always does. Quote, yeah. noir means black, so it feels definitional. Is that a word? But certain other features have crept into the definition. I googled and got, quote, film noir is a stylized genre of film marked by pessimism, fatalism, and cynicism. The term was originally used in France after World War II to describe American thriller or detective films in the 1940s and 50s, though Hollywood's film noir stretches back to the 1920s, end quote. So certain hard-boiled, pessimistic, cynical color movies get the label. I enjoy them and find the label helpful when deciding whether or not to watch a movie, whether color or black and white. Not to harp on Tokyo Drifter, yes he does, <laughs> but they ran out of money making it and parts are black and white and parts are color. I also have seen scenes in movies and on TV where parts of the screen are black and white and parts color. There is so much that can be done with film and isn't. I was hoping that trip noir would become a thing after Pinchon created the genre, but it never caught on and I have never seen the movie Inherent Vice, but want to. Oh. If that were a thing, I would want it to have psychedelic coloring, end quote. Hmm. I don't know what trip noir is, but now I'm interested. Well, it's kind of, you know, I guess it's the kind of like trippy films, like the uh, psychedelic films of the 60s and early 70s combined with noir. Wow. I can't. I think that would make uh, me hurt. Yeah. Oh, he also points out that there is a move to put color noir films into a classification called neo-noir. Hmm. Oh. Well, thanks, Dave. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, look into that. Regan McStravick, who knows a thing or two about cinematography, posted, quote, doesn't have to be in black and white, but real colors are pretty much impossible. Just like in still photography, there is a difference in how you light black and white versus color, because colors change as things fall into shadow, and they don't appear natural on a recorded image. The way film noir is lit doesn't generally lend itself well towards natural-looking color, end quote. Well, there you go. Thanks, Regan. point. Okay. Yeah. Nick Hoffman said, quote, fun fact... Color is additive in paint or solid and subtractive in light. So in paint, black is the presence of all colors, while in light, it is the absence of all color light. Because film works in light wavelengths, black is the negative and white is the positive, and gray represents everything in between, which is why I prefer noir and black and white. Shadows are starker, faces reveal expression that isn't as clearly perceived in a color film. End quote. Well, well argued. Nick. Yeah. The fun part is, is that in pigments... All of the colors together give you a kind of muddy purplish brown. That's what it's, I thought. Yeah, I well, remember that from accidentally mixing a lot of colors together. Yeah, it doesn't actually work that way. Light mm. does work that way, though. Dan Schaefer was next with, quote, Black and white for sure. The more prominent forward use of shadow and light enhances the tension and emotional impact of the noir aesthetic, end quote. Oh, thanks, Dan. Seth Jacobs, like Angelo before him, said simply, quote, Black and white, end well, quote. Well, there we go. Oh, thanks, Seth. Short to the point. Yeah, I wish he could have been a little more concise, that's all. Yeah. Oh, well. Way on up to the website, we have that bastion of penguin control, Vince, who wrote, quote, I think black and white is classic noir, but it isn't the only way to present the style. 
David Lynch's Blue Velvet is noir, and so is Blade Runner. Heavy shadows, odd camera angles, and using light in contrast to separate your point of interest works in color as well, although he spells color funny. I would say color noir works best with saturated colors or isolated colors highlighting an element like a red dress in a dimly lit room. End mm. quote. Oh, coolness. And uh, keep those penguins corralled. <laughs> I've, yeah, I'm surprised. I thought with all the penguins, he'd just be black and white all the way, but maybe he's just sick of it and enjoys the red of the blood of the penguins. Or not. Or anyway, not. thanks, Vince. But what about you, Max? Is it best in black and white, or does color stand a chance? You know, it's funny. My opinion over the years changed. I used to think film noir had to be black and white, but I don't think it's true. I do agree with, and I've already forgotten who said this, about that. It, I don't think you can do it with, like, bright colors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea of the saturated or the muted colors, like we saw in The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. sort of washed out look. But I, I do agree that there's got to be a lot of play between light and shadow. But you can do that with color. We've seen it. I, I think uh, color can work. I, To me, black and white really just screams film noir. It makes it much clearer what it is. But I do think it's possible. What about you, Mr. Addist? Well, you know, to the, the term that's often bounced about in still life, or not still life, in still arts or 2D arts is chiaroscuro, which mm-hmm. is the play of light against shadow, even if that is... A term I thought it was a sandwich. Often... No. Okay. <laughs> sandwich? Yeah, nice chiaroscuro with some aioli mayonnaise. Mm-mm. No. Oh. <laughs> aioli mayonnaise? Aioli has mayonnaise in it. Anyway, I, I think that we might find, especially with this series, that there's a dividing line, and when Dave mentioned neo-noir, it might be that that's what we end up doing. Because while we, in the, the, the long goodbye, found all of the elements and a lot of the feelings, certainly the ending of noir, it certainly doesn't look like, quote-unquote, traditional noir. Um, I think, well, I won't say one thing or the other about Diva, because that will come at the end of the show, but Blade Runner, for sure. I mean, if that's not yeah. noir, I don't know what it is. You know, science yeah. fiction, sure, whatever. But I also agree with whoever said Blue Velvet. That works, too. Yeah, David Lynch. I haven't seen that. The only two David Lynch films I've seen are Eraserhead and Dune. Oh. <laughs> I didn't like either one of them. <laughs> yeah, I personally find that the black and white is... It tends to be much more of an extreme. Like, things are good or bad. There's not yeah. as much... I mean, that's sort of the point, right? And the color stuff tends to be a little bit more sophisticated so oh. far, but we'll see if that holds up. So, yeah. I think it can be. I think it's just... It's almost like one's a more mature version of the other, if that makes any sense. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Yeah. But that's not all. In no. each box of Bumpy Puck cereal, there's also, buried deep under the marbits, another poll question. What don't, is- don't go digging for it, really. <laughs> you Don't. Just don't. <laughs> Dib deep into the pucks. <laughs> what, what is your favorite foreign film? Subbed or dubbed, which movie from outside Hollywood transcends language and culture and just does it for you? Let us know, and we'll send you a case of Bumpy Puck cereal as soon as it's invented. There might (laughs) even be some Bumpy Bucks hidden inside. But for now, the prize is... Start your day the Bumpy Pucks way, made with alfalfa, oats, and hay. Have a bowl, you'll never frown. Keep an extra box around. Sugar-frosted Bumpy Pucks. Our ponies work twice as hard, so you only have to chew half as long. Or something. Oh, and vitamins. 
facts. Budget. A very modest $1.5 million. Well, was that, that was in Franks? French dollars, right? I think it's actually like translated into dollars, ah, okay. which is nothing. Yeah, even, that's... Like, yeah. Even in 81, like that's... That's the I catering think, budget. Yeah, Star Wars was like eight million, and this is like one and a half. And you get to drive to France. That must have cost a million dollars, right well, there. Well, you un you understand, of course, at least a third of that went for cigarettes. The take, almost twenty million. Zoot Elor. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Why well, didn't make any of the sequels? Well, or did they? We're, we're, well, there's not sequels in movies, but we'll get to the 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 mm -hmm. other stories part in a bit. Mm -hmm. This movie was based on one of a series of books, so I guess yeah. we're getting to it right now. In the books, the characters Alba and Garodish were the main characters. Yeah. Wanting to keep as close to the book as possible, the producers searched high and low looking for a beautiful black soprano. While attending a performance of Carmen, in which Wilhelmina Fernandez was playing the title role, they felt they found their diva. And in case you were wondering, Miss Fernandez does her all her own singing in this film. And I'm going to mispronounce the hell out of this, but this is director Jean-Jacques Benet's first film. He was an assistant director under a number of other directors' firsts, one of them being, wait for it, yeah. Jerry Louis. Oh, a genius. Yes. On what film, you might ask? The might. infamous The Day the Clown Cried. Oh, no. So he worked with Jerry Lewis on the movie Jerry Lewis Wouldn't Let Anyone See. Nah, that is the one. It is too sad. We are all thinking about death all the time. I think this, they'd like that. Okay. Yeah. This film did okay in France, though critics mostly panned or ignored it. When it was sent overseas in various festivals, however, it gained legs and did quite well. Hmm. Other than that, there really isn't a lot of trivia about this movie. Did I mention it's French? Oh. <laughs> oh. You don't know anything more about this. I know the book series. I read the at least oh. two of them. Yeah? Were they any good? They were interesting. There's something kind of uncomfortable about them. I mean, not the least of which is... I think of him as Serge, because, uh, you know, that's Gorodish's first name, although oh. it's never used in the movie. No. In the book, he's just referred to as Serge the whole time. Oh. Uh, him, his relationship with Alba is very odd. Well, he's very odd. He's like an international man of mystery, really. He kind of <laughs> is. They never really say where he got all these skills or all these abilities, why he does what he does. Or and his whole thing with Alba is he will not touch her sexually until she's 18. Well, In the that's books, good. In the book, I think she starts out as she's like 14 or 15. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, I do have to say, I mean, I don't. In the book, she's like she's like classic blonde, blue eyes. Oh, and and in the, in this, I think the woman they have for it, she's played by Toy Van Lu, who's French Vietnamese. And Lu, and Lu, hmm? oh, and Lu, excuse me. And it really works. I mean, I think she's I think she's great, and she's also just. I, I don't. I honestly, I tried to find out how old she was in this movie. Mm -hmm. I can't find anything. It's hmm. like nothing about her. Weird. But she's beautiful. And she's also, she's supposed to be incredibly precocious and incredibly intelligent. And you get that. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, com that comes across. She's also that way in the books. The books now, are Real confusing. quick, I have to point out, I haven't done the plot yet. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just still talking, in effect, trivia. That's the sure. only trivia I know it from the books. Uh, there's a whole, there's like four or five of them. They all have one-word titles. 
Diva, uh, Lupa, Nana, I'm not sure what else. But uh, Nobis, they, were, they were very popular. <laughs> at least, huh. They were at least here. I know I worked in a bookstore. They would sell out pretty regularly. You did? I know. Frightening, isn't it? When were you going to tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> Just because I worked in a bookstore. next door. God, for heaven's sake. <laughs> yeah, I was a le bookstore comique, so it was different. Ah, yes. <laughs> So, yes, tell us the plot, won't you? Well, I mean, it's all in French, so there's no point in going over that, is there? True. So, a lot of French stuff happens to French people. Done. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I guess mm, I maybe. should. Yeah. Tradition, as it were. Okay, cue the accordion music. Jules is a young, moped-driving postal carrier in Paris. He has a deep love of opera, and specifically, an American opera singer named Cynthia Hawkins, played by Wilhelmina Fernandez. Jules, played by Frédéric André, goes to one of her performances, sneaking in a professional-level tape recorder just so he can listen to her whenever he wants. Cynthia does not make recordings, feeling that her performances mean nothing without an audience. What Jules does not know is that he was observed making the recording by two Taiwanese recording... thugs? (laughs) And they very much want the tape, as Taiwan does not observe international copyright laws. They believe they can make a good deal of money from this. After the performance, Jules manages to get into Cynthia's dressing room where he gets an autograph and manages to slip off with the gown she wore during her performance. Jules is, uh, how you say, obsessed. Meanwhile, the stalker. <laughs> meanwhile, well, if, does a stalker actually just never go up to the person they're stalking and ask for their autograph? It's kind of... A lot, yeah. All right. Meanwhile, a woman who has escaped confinement from her pimp, not Guido, is desperately trying to meet up with the cops to break the news that the head of the homicide department is the one running this huge drugs and prostitution ring. Pursued by two of the syndicate's hitmen, she barely manages to slip a cassette on which she's recorded all the information that will indict the inspector into Jules' moped saddlebag before being stabbed to death a mere few yards from her rendezvous. Jules, unaware that there are now two groups very interested in a tape he possesses, continues his fixation on Cynthia, managing to gain a personal meeting with her. Feelings between them develop. The Taiwanese trash Jules' apartment while he's out. Finding the ruins of all his tapes, Jules escapes to a friend's spacious home, trying to hide out from whom he doesn't even know. And from there, things get weird. There are various plots in trying to get the two tapes, the existence of one being totally unknown by Jules until near the end. There are chasers through dark Paris streets, twin Citroens, deals made with the inspector, with the Taiwanese, culminating in a tense shootout and, perhaps, a chance for Jules to rise above it all, his love of music, and Cynthia intact. The Film So Max. Yeah. Had you seen this before? I had. I saw oh, it on okay. videotape long time about oh boy, long time ago. I'm sorry, on what? Video cassette tape. Magnetic did, tape, yes. Did you like watch it while listening to your gramophone? <laughs> no, but I did I, we we did feast upon mammoth ribs and uh, we did have to <laughs> periodically stop the the tape to fight off the saber-toothed tigers. Do, just when would you have seen this? Do you remember? I believe it was in the oh Late 80s, early 90s. The before times. The before times, <laughs> yes. It wasn't really that long after it came out in 81. Yep. And I think I saw it maybe five, six years later. Hmm. Have you ever seen it? 
I actually saw it when it came out. Oh, wow. You saw it in the theater? I did. I saw it at the Brattle. And I'm guessing it was probably the year after it came out because it was not initially released as worldwide, but, you know, ended up making its money. And I was still in high school when I would have seen this. And I have no idea why I would have gone to see this because it's a French film. And why do I care about that when I'm a high school kid? (laughs) But it made an impression. And I really remember liking it. Um, that was 40 some odd years ago, so we'll have to see if that holds up or not. But yeah, I got to see it at the little local repertoire movie house, nice. which is, I think, kind of like the best way to see it. I mean, mm. the only thing that would have made it more authentic is if people had been smoking in the theater. Yeah. yeah, I think it was our friend Libby who recommended it. I think she might have seen it in the theater. Hmm. I'm not sure. But yes, let's first of all, let's get Le Babar in the room out of the way. This movie is so damn French. <laughs> This is the Frenchest thing since French dressing, which has nothing to do with France, but <laughs> this is a croissant riding a mime into the Champs, along the Champs-Elysees while eating a baguette, you know? <laughs> is it, there's accordion music. Everybody is smoking, except, of course, now I will give them this, the uh, opera singer does not. No, I don't she think Jules not. does. No, but his friends no do. Op- no op- hmm? His friends do. Yes, his friends all smoke. And, you know, one guy has a cat who he names Ayatollah. Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> which is also extremely French. Yeah. And th- there's a guy playing the accordion at one there, point. <laughs> as soon as he popped up, my note was, an accordion, kill it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even from one of the opening shots to me, where there's the, the informer, Krantz, yeah. Who is in like three scenes? Yeah, and all I, I my note says he could not look more French. He's sitting at a cafe table, slouched over, cigarette is hanging off his lower lip, and he is just consumed with ennui. I disagree. He can look more French, and he does, because it turns out we find out later he runs a little. I don't know, lottery booth with a spinning wheel. And there he looks even more French because now the cigarette's hanging even lower and he (laughs) looks even more ennui-ish. And also, that scene, he gets killed, stabbed to death from behind by a thrown ice pick. Sure. He slumps over the booth and the two French people who were at the gambling are just sort of like, oh, we already have won the Beethoven figure. Oh, and they're just... Utterly unfazed by the fact that he is lying there with an ice pick sticking out of his back. Well, and also, uh, they were talking about what to bet on, and the husband had said, don't bet on the ace of spades, it's bad luck. And then when he falls over dead, the husband goes, ah, see what I said, it is bad luck. (laughs) It's like utterly unflappable. (laughs) And and there are a couple of moments where you're like, are they making fun of themselves? Uh, You have to wonder. Do they realize how French they are? So, yes, it is a very um, ciné-français, if you will. So, But I guess we can talk about the cast. It's a little yeah, odd because, a, you know, I'm sure a lot of our... We don't our, know any of them. <laughs> no. I will say, I'll start off with Wilhelm, Wilhelmina, because there's an L in there, which makes things easy, harder to say. Uh, yeah, I think it's pronounced still pronounced Wilhelmina, in don't gen, at least in America. Mm. Don't know. But I yeah. will say... Her singing is exquisite. She oh has Oh my god, the voice on that woman. Yeah, and you can see and they play it's funny cuz they end up playing her opening little aria there a number of times. And the thing is and it's it's from an 
opera called Le Wally. Yeah, I know. What? Not very dignified title. <laughs> no. But she also does the Ave Maria. Yeah. But that opening aria, whenever it starts, there's a real power to it. And you can yeah. totally see him getting lost in it. Even if you're not an opera fan, mm-hmm. you can understand why he is as fixated as he is. I prefer poker, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. There's the a deeper. Thing, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> A very deeper. Good luck. Good luck for extra bumpy bucks. Anyone gets that one. I will say, though, as an actor, she's a really good singer. She's not awful, but no. she's an opera star, and they do get trained. They do have to act to a certain degree. But it's different. Yeah, it's you. You. She's not a. She's not a movie actor. No. You can tell she's toning everything down yeah. because an opera star, you have to do everything big. I mean, you're on stage, and opera is just the scale tends to be very grand and very impressive. And yeah, that this isn't her. What gets me is they try to make her look kind of small and vulnerable. Sometimes. The woman is 5'10". She is not some little slip of a thing. And she's an opera singer. She's an athlete. Those Mm -hmm. guys are incredibly physically powerful. They have to be. The lung capacity is just out of this world. Her voice is really stunning. I I don't know her from anything else, but I remembered the voice from 40 years ago, and I remember being a thing. I didn't know at the time whether she was actually singing or not. I was really glad to find out that that she she was. I also really have to give them credit, because apparently in the book, she's a black opera singer, so we have to find a black opera singer, where Mm -hmm. they didn't, but they kept to that, and I'm glad they did. Yeah. Uh, Frédéric André as Jules. Yeah. I mean, what a puppy dog. He, he, is, he is very cute. Even, you kind of go, all right, he's a stalker. She should be calling les gendarmes. Well, she does. They will well, almost. She gets to the nine. Yeah. <laughs> the the neuf. Neuf. <laughs> neuf. Neuf de pop. And, uh, you know, they'll come and beat him to death with bread, but... <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he's he's just very, so cute, and she, she's obviously like, well, you know, he's a stalker, but uh, he's kind of hot. He's cute, and he's got these big brown eyes, and he, even though he isn't, he gives off this air of being rather innocent, because later mm. on he's like cruising for uh, a prostitute, and in a added bit of creepiness, yeah. he's, he's stolen the dress, and he wants to find a black prostitute so he can dress her up like his <laughs> opera star, and yeah. then have sex with his opera star, which is... At least he, I was afraid he was going to try to get her to, like, okay, now can you sing an aria from Madame Butterfly? Yeah. I just, part of me couldn't help but wonder, it's like, is this a French thing where they're all, all the French audience was going, oh, yeah, but of course, this is what I would do if I were in his state of shoes, you know? Because <laughs> um, it's really, really weird if you take that part aside. Yeah. It's like, okay, I want you to dress up somebody that I am stalking and I want to have sex with you, but I don't want you to not to be you. I want you to be this other person. But yeah. Um, I want to say, we're going to skip a couple of people because I honestly don't remember them. Richard, I'm going to guess, Boehringer as Serge Garotish. Yeah. He's a really interesting character about whom we know almost nothing. But he is just so damn cool. You don't care. No. In fact, you know, I don't want to know more about him. I just like how he's, any situation he's in, he's in control. He's not stunned or surprised by anything. And you just wonder, where did he get his money? Because he obviously has a lot of it. Oh, yeah. That apartment? Woof. Well, he's got this giant apartment in the middle of Paris, which he has painted black. He has cars he can afford to have blown up. 
well, we'll get to this, but yeah, he has dual Citroens, okay, um, which, sure, I, I guess so. But he sits there building the biggest jigsaw puzzle I've ever seen. <laughs> the thing's yeah. like 12 feet long. Enormous. And that seems, but he also seems, in, I don't know why I get this impression, but he seems intellectually really sharp. Mm. And like there's you you get the impression that he's doing these mental exercises in the back of while he's building a puzzle or listening to this weird ass music and stuff. So I I don't know the character from the book, but I found him really interesting. So Yeah. Um, he's true. And uh Gerard Oh, I was gonna Sorry. go to Gerard Damon who plays Lentile who is the creepy I guess he's the West Indian. I never did figure out who the West Indian was. No, right? I don't think we know. No, well he's I don't know what he's supposed to be, but he's very creepy and he does a good job. Um we have uh Jacques oh. Fabry, who is the commissionaire Jean Saporta, who is yeah, the evil bad, the bad guy. guy. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, spoiler, but it's pretty clear about halfway through. Uh, and we've got Dominique Pignon as le curé, the priest. He okay. Here's the thing about le curé. He is about five feet tall. Looks yeah. like he probably weighs about ninety pounds. <laughs> and wet. as sinister as crap. Yeah, absolutely menacing as hell. He's the guy who goes around killing people with an ice pick. He wears like punk glasses. He's always listening to an earpiece, which apparently he's listening to klezmer music. Well, no, it was accordion. It was French accordion music. That's uh, klezmer music uses the accordion. I well, think it was klezmer. But klezmer Je- was Jewish. Yeah, well, it was Germanic. But yeah, uh, I it was just when the thing came out, I thought it was supposed to be an, a, a hearing aid, and then when he pulls it out at the or it falls out at the end when he dies. Spoiler, I <laughs> was like, is he just trying to stay as French as possible? Like he's getting it's almost like having an IV of French, except it's going into his brain or something. It was just like what an odd choice. Yeah, yeah. And his partner, who I think is Zetopek, is that him? Well, was that him or was it La Antale? I'm not sure. I thought it was La Antale, but I could be wrong. Zetopek, of course, was the name of a Czech uh, marathon runner. Because we don't really know their names through this. He's Le Curé, we find out at the end. because he calls, That's not his name. That's like his title. Yeah, he calls I guess. him Priest. Yeah. And I just was referring to them as the punk and the long face. Okay. Yeah, I thought him as a skinhead, but they're suitably menacing and you know bad guyish. Yeah, they're horrible. Uh, and then there's some other. Oh yeah, and Toy and Lou, who yeah, she is as as interesting as Garodish is easily. Um, and of course, how does Jules meet her? Oh, he notices that she's ripping off records from this record store. Yeah, and she's doing it for fun. I mean, obviously, money isn't an issue. She just and she doesn't keep anything. She steals all the time and gives the stuff away. Well, she gives it to Grotish, who's she's living with. Well, she so. says she st- she takes stuff and gives it uh, to people as gifts. Yeah, sure. But of course, and you she look did- at uh, where she's living, and it's like you could afford to buy that. Yeah, she gives him a roll. You know, she gives Jules a Rolex watch, the first thing she ever stole, apparently. <laughs> yeah, their meeting and instant friendship should have really rung some bells, and yet it kind of doesn't. No, it's kind of kind of works yeah even though again she's very young but she's really smart and the way you can tell is she's got this big artist portfolio that she uses to steal records 
And the thing is, is she's smart enough not just to use that to steal records. She's smart enough to actually put a slot in the cardboard. So that's where the records go. So that when she's called out, she is yes. remembered to put in nude photos of herself, knowing it will make the people behind the counter uncomfortable yep. and she'll be able to get away with it. It's a great, it's a great distraction. Now she's very, very sharp. Yeah. I also, there's something incredibly kind about her. I like the whole thing where Jules gets shot at one point mm-hmm. and, and, you know, this is one thing I actually really like in this movie. He's shot in the shoulder, and in an American movie, you get shot in the shoulder, and you're like, ow, I'll just put my hand over this, and I'm fine. You wipe that little Kirk blood from the corner yeah. of your mouth and keep Yeah, exactly, fighting. and he's bleeding like a stuck pig. He's about to pass out. He's yeah. staggering. All That's what happens to you when you get shot. Yeah. I like that, and he's like trying not to... Try not to bleed out in a phone booth. And she just stays on the phone with him and starts telling him a story that she's just making up about, you know, going to the seaside. And, yeah. And keeps him, it basically keeps him awake until the, <laughs> le curé finds him and he's about to kill him. And then, as far as I can tell, Serge hits him with some bat gas. That's exactly the same note I had. Yep. That was all I could think. Because he sprays this stuff and he just keels over. There's no anesthetic gas in the world that works that fast. I wish he'd coshed him with something. Because it really was bat sleep, right? And the other, yep. in the other, in the other pocket, he's got the bat wake for when they get to the bat cave. Because, yeah, exactly the same goddamn note. I knew you were going to do that. That's yep. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, no, she is very kind. And you, one could easily say that, well, she can afford to be. Look how she lives. No, but again, you, there are these weird... They're one of a few fantasy elements of this film, to me, that let you feel that you're grounded in the quote-unquote noir and grittiness of it. But they are also this, I don't know, dreamlike element. Yeah, there's something kind of fantastic about them. I mean, even the little things, when he's cutting, um, I think it's onions, I assume, since Serge is cutting onions, he's wearing a diver's mask and snorkel. And my first thought when I saw that sequence was, oh, okay, they're just doing some French absurdists. And my second thought was, that's actually a pretty good thing to do if onions really bother you when you cut them. Yeah. That's a very smart way to protect your eyes and uh, your nasal passages. And who would think of this but the French? (laughs) And, of course, he's talking all about the proper way to... I don't know what he was making, because he, like, takes an entire baguette, slits it open, butters it, all while lecturing about the right way to do this, and then rubs caviar into it, which I've never... Maybe that's a thing. I don't know. And I don't know what he's doing with the onions. It's a French thing, Max. (laughs) It must be a French thing, and therefore it is probably delicious. Probably. Mm. Probably. Probably. Um, But that's also a sort of fantastic thing. Those two in general are like a, as I said, a fantasy element. Mm. They're almost, it's almost like this weird little couple of fae or something. I don't know. There's something kind of otherworldly about them. There is. They're still, they don't seem out of place, and that's the weird part. They just, they kind of fit in. And this is a really interesting look at Paris. For one thing, Paris feels really empty in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's not a lot of people in it. 
Well, except in the beginning, where Nadia is walking around in the crowds, there's a lot of people then. Right, and there's also like the opening when they're in the opera house, which is like, is it about to be torn down or what? It's so Looks pretty weird shabby. because, well, and things like there's pieces missing and it's very crumbly, but it's also very clean. Mm. And I can totally see them saying, "Well, uh, this is what we want—the artistic look of the." Blah, 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 blah. It, it kind of makes sense, but it's again that kind of element of fantasy along with the kind of gritty noir parts of things. But some of that is very Parisian because a lot of those buildings are like 11 billion years old, and they don't want to change them at all. It's like this is how it was in the time of Louis XIV, and we will not change it, even if it is going to fall upon our heads and kill us. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's how we open the film, is like this this mix of this angelic voice and this rather decrepit background. And there's a lot of stuff visually going on. And in fact, this is a, a film that's part of a movement I hadn't heard of called Cinema du Luc. It's an oh. 80s and 90s movement in French film which found style more important than content, although I don't necessarily oh. agree with that in this film. Um, this film's director is one of the prime members, and so is Luc Besson. Oh, is he the Luke in it? In no, 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 no. Luke Besson's a director. He did yeah, Fifth no, Element. Yeah, I know, but you oh. said it was Cinema de Luke. No, uh, L-O-O-K. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Not Luke, as in Luke. Yeah, you said it the Web. same way. I cannot let it. It's French. It's like but these it's... French have a different word for everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Mm. Um, I think they set up the idea of this being a sinister film very early this is great shot where we are looking at the diva sing through the reflection of the sunglasses of the taiwanese and there is something mm. very sinister about that shot and there's a couple of shots throughout the film that are just like really artfully composed for example uh, jules re refers to cynthia as his queen of the night and when they go mm. out on a date everything is tinged blue I don't know if you noticed yeah. that. I didn't. That's that's a good point. Yeah, it's just it adds to that sort of fantasy element to it of it, and yet it's the film is very grainy because it's they're they're dealing with a lot of low light situations which they don't try to connect uh, correct, and it's not like they tried to scrub up Paris. We're not seeing like the nice part. We're not seeing the, the you know the glass pyramid in front of the Louvre. We're going down into some of the you know, less interesting subway stations and parking garages and stuff like that. Hey, that's the sequence where the chase scene where the cop is running after Jules and Jules is driving a moped through the metro is really cool. It's very exciting and it's wonderful to watch. And it's just the way all the people in there, the French are just going, oh, look, another chase through the subway. <laughs> Let me get out of your way. I will just jump up a little bit and you can get by. All right, when yes. The little bit where the cop is trying to get into the train car because he, he's jumped on the back and this older man is just sort of looking at him like this. I see you. I am just not going to do anything. And he holds up, the guy holds up his police badge and the guy reaches into his coat and holds up his veteran's card like, <laughs> I'll see your badge and, and raise you this. I'm not getting up. Yeah, there's there's weird little weird little moments of humor in there, and they're they're mm. so, I can't think of a better word. They're so French that we almost miss them, but yeah. that's okay. It's not trying to appeal beyond anyone except its original audience. 
For those wondering, Nagra is a very, very well-known brand of tape recorder, especially in espe- oh. that, that time period uh, in the film industry. I remember when I went to film school, when we got to use the good tape recorder, it was the Nagra. Oh, that being okay. said... The recording he gets would have to have come from the soundboard because you're yeah. in the audience and yeah. And his and his machine's in a bag. Yeah. I and mean I, the microphone is in a bag. It's, it's the whole thing is gonna be, you know, you know. <laughs> Luckily not that, but yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh speaking of sound, this the soundtrack is really interesting. It's mm. very multicultural in a way i think because there's that weird almost sort of himalayan music that Garodish is playing and then there's obviously opera and then there's this weird sort of techno stuff in the opening of the film when the poor prostitute's trying to get to her rendezvous which is a french word for rendezvous (laughs) (laughs) and i just found that it's almost a character, and it kind of reminds me of Akira, which would come out a few years later, mm. where Akira would have it's all Japanese, but it's the cultures or the time periods and the way the music is, is sculpted into place, it reminded me of this. It's also interesting to me how some of the, the uh, soundtrack is Jules's music that he's playing, mm-hmm. and suddenly it will shut off when he gets somewhere. It's yeah. ki- it was very jarring because you're hearing this beautiful you know, da 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 like, oh, oh, that was him. That which wasn't I, the movie. Which I really appreciate because mm. the only reason we have soundtracks at all for movies is because it's something they did during si- silent films, so people yeah. have something to listen to. And that's it's it's a tradition that people don't get away from because people think it's weird if it's not there. But if you think about it, it's like, why is there music playing? Yeah. Um, Am I in the mall? I mean, uh, <laughs> what's going on? There are you know directors who don't use background music at all. But the thing is, it's always like a conscious choice. I am not using background music because I'm not doing the standard thing. Right. And people often go, "Oh, it's, he did made such a bold choice not to have background music," as opposed to, "Why the hell am I hearing, I don't know, you know, Rachmaninoff while this guy's walking down the street buying a newspaper." Or what was the song they played in Clockwork Orange that basically ruined it forever? Oh, God, the, the Ode to Joy, Beethoven's Ninth. Was that what it was? No, it was, lo- no, 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 it was a movie song. Oh, Singing in the Singin Rain. Singing in the Rain, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant that because uh, Beethoven's Ninth is what ends up being little Alex's trigger. It's when he commits a heinous crime, he's singing, singing in the rain. So Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you got any vibes like this. I kind of got, and it's backwards because it would come out a year later, but I got vibes of Blade Runner from this film. Huh. Visually. Not really. Well, oh, visually, not really, honestly, because things weren't wet enough. The thing I always... (laughs) The thing I always think of as Blade Runner is everything is wet. Everything's dripping and damp and... You know, like L.A. always is. It's Mm. like like always happening at night. And this one, you have some daylight. Not a lot. And it's not bright daylight. But there is some stuff happening during the day. But interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in terms of Blade Runner-esque. It just wouldn't surprise me if... um, Ridley Scott? Ridley Scott had seen this. Because Blade Runner doesn't feel like a lot of other Ridley Scott films to me. It doesn't feel like Legend, good. Yeah, um, yeah. It, doesn't it feel, doesn't really feel like um, Gladiator. Thelma and Louise. Yeah. It is his own thing. And I always felt that Blade Runner had a kind of international feel to it. 
And I wonder if some of these cinema do look films at all influ- influenced him in, a, in a good way. Because again, there's this sort of graininess. There's this definite dirtiness that mm-hmm. was because Star Wars had brought some of that back with all its ship looking like people had actually used them as mm-hmm. opposed to you know Star Trek, which of course is my favorite show. Yeah, but everything actually, is all clean and shiny and made out of you know salt shakers. Well, that's what the lower decks people are for. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It just was something that that I was like, huh, this has a feeling kind of I just visually nothing to do yeah. with the story, of course, but because there's well, no I opera singers. I could definitely see that. Let me ask you something. You think this is noir? I guess we have to come to that question. Yeah. I think it has noir elements to it. It has one of the big it, it's missing one of the big ones, which is it more or less has a happy ending, right? Which kind of we discussed is pretty much not noir, except there are a bunch of noir, as we'll see in our next one, that do, that do have some happy-ish endings. Yeah, I I don't think if it's noir, it is a new version. It is definitely uh, what did we say? What was it called? Nouvelle noir or whatever it was? Neo noir. Neo noir. I would definitely put it in that category, but it definitely has. I mean, it's got crooked cops, it's got murder, it's oh, got yeah. theft, it's got mistaken identity, it's got shootout, it's got chases. I mean, it feels like noir. Yeah, it's got, you know, you know, people, betrayal and, uh, you know, hidden motives and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, besides, you know, the hard-bitten streets of San Francisco or New York or L.A. where most noir took place, if there's mm-hmm. one place there's going to be noir, it's going to be Paris. Yeah. <laughs> But I think because of the fantasy elements and the you know the little bits of of pretty much Garodish and uh, Alba, I think it would either have to be considered neo noir or just having noir elements. What about you? I think I think it's definitely noir. It felt very film noir to me again because um, most of the moral lines are kind of muddied. Mm-hmm. We have no idea why Garodish is doing what he's doing. We don't know why he helps Jules. He is instrumental in the death of several people. Doesn't seem to bother him. We we don't know any of the motivations, and that doesn't seem to be a problem. Mm. And again, there this is very the gritty underbelly. We see you know it's about a prostitution ring, mm. and we see the Jules frequents, or at least goes at least once to a prostitute. And they're so friendly. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very nice. <laughs> hey, can I stay at your apartment? I'm being chased by people. No, please. Okay. Well, yeah, but she also then, you know, betrays him and turns him in. Well, but I there think that, that she wasn't, it wasn't so much that she was originally thinking that. I think she found out, oh, they're looking yeah. for him? Well, yeah, I'm definitely. And I better turn him in because otherwise, eh, bad yeah, for well, me. Look what, look what happened to Paulette or whatever her name is. Yeah, was. Nadia, yeah. Nadia, yeah. Mm. Huh, so you, you would yeah, definitely I say think, it's noir. I think it's, I think it's noir. I do see why it's not classic noir or standard noir. Because, again, first off, there's no... Well, I, I don't know if you could consider Garodish a detective. He's But he the, feels like one, doesn't he? He really does, although he sort of goes beyond that. But he's not the main character. Jules is, and Jules is a victim. In most of this, that's what he does. He is a victim. Well, is he... Well, he, most, he's also as creepy as Stalker, but... <laughs> he is a victim of the whole plot of 
trying to bring down the homicide detective as the head of the prostitution ring because he literally is just standing there and evidence yeah, is planted in oh, his Oh, he bike. gets pulled into it. Yeah, he's not trying to do anything. He just, he is a victim. Someone, you know, Nadia stuffs the uh, cassette in his bag but the just because he happens to be there. But the Taiwanese recording goons, that's his fault. <laughs> that, well, Although, yeah. I do wonder how they tracked him down. <laughs> well, they're, they're Taiwanese. They're good at that. Uh, don't, don't check into that. I don't know. <laughs> They're, gangs- they're, ga- they're gangsters. <laughs> they're gangsters. They have uh, probably a pretty serious network of people to, to uh, deal with. And even more dangerous, they work for the recording industry. <laughs> you don't <laughs> mess with those people. <laughs> that is a, the MPA is bad. Um, there's a quote here that is given by Cynthia, and I want to read that off and then ask you a question. So she says, quote, music comes and goes. Don't try to keep it, end quote. And her mm. whole thing is she will not record her performances because she says it is a living thing. When she sings, she has to have an audience to react to or it's not the same. She actually even equates when they're talking to her about bootlegs and recordings of her stuff, she equates it to rape. Yeah. How sustainable do you think that is as a goal a goal of a performer? Oh, God. You're, you're going to try to get me to answer the whole ephemeral nature of art? Yes. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> oh, please, Max, pretty please, Max, enter the question. I don't know. As a business model, it's idiotic. I'm yeah. sorry. Her manager's right. It's crazy. And as he points out, she's 32, which, by the way, for an opera singer, is pretty old. I just disagree there because Beverly Sills was doing pretty well, well into her 40s. <laughs> the, Beverly Sills, Pavarotti, Pablo Casal, all of those guys. Pablo Casal was guys a cellist, the, huh? Pablo Casals was a cellist. <laughs> well, he was still old. Uh, Placido Domingo, a lot of those guys sang into, sang into the later parts of their lives. They were the exceptions, not the rule. Hmm. Most of these guys blow out their voices before they're 35. Hmm. But... Yeah, again, if you from artistic purity, from the idea that art isn't supposed to last, I understand that philosophy. I don't think I I don't like it personally because you're saying I have to miss out on some of these amazing things because I wasn't there at the moment they were created. That's kind of mean. Well, think of it this way: Let's have you ever listened to? I didn't say owned. Have you ever listened to a bootleg recording of a live rock show? Maybe. It's not illegal to listen to it, Max. Yeah, I have. I have listened. Did it make you feel like you were there? More than a pre-recorded, you know, professionally made version, yeah. But did it make you feel like you were at that show? No, not really. Because you're not. I mean, I'm not smelling, the audience isn't around me, I'm not smelling the weed smoke. Yes, it was a Grateful (laughs) Dead tape. Uh, Which I suppose doesn't count because they... Okay, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, which not only, because not only did they not object to people recording their concerts they'd let them put the co- the co- radio the cassette players or the recorders up on stage with them they encouraged it hmm. but no it didn't make me feel like it was there there's it's true a recorded performance is never the same as actually being there it can't be no but what a, but then you have to wonder like what about the, there were painters who used to show their works and then burn them hmm Emily Dickinson wanted all of her poems burned after she died. A a number of writers and other people are like, no, I I don't want anyone else to see them. I want the people I showed them to to see them and no one else ever. Mm. And once people have seen it, I don't want it to be seen. 
uh, that doesn't work for me. What about you? I mean, that's this is your world. I'm not an opera singer. <laughs> well, but sure I you, play sure one on are. TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure you are. I'm sure you can, you know, scream a high, a high E over above middle C is up there with the next of them. Tore adoro, don't spit on the floor. Use the cuspidor. <laughs> what do you think? That's it's what it's there. for. Yes, very nice. <laughs> I lost my shirt. I lost my shirt. <laughs> I won't be happy till I find. But okay, anyway. <laughs> I asked to be or not to be. That is the question that That's I asked of me. And yeah. that is the answer that you get from me. <laughs> I totally understand as an artist her wanting to control her art. I think it's just not possible especially as technology progresses you're going to get i mean even just man the 90s um 10 years after this film was made a little after 10 years we're gonna have the mini disc what is the mini disc Mm. the mini disc is a digital recording thing that's the size of a deck of playing cards yeah and you can carry it anywhere and the best part is it doesn't look like a recorder it looks like a player and i've known people i knew actually somebody who was just specifically wanted to get the sounds from inside a casino they don't want you to do things like that so he went in recorded them and as we were coming out the guard said hey is that a recorder and he was like no it's just my music player okay and he's like (laughs) wank because it was yeah so i there were people i'm told who would go to concerts with those things in their pockets wires running up their sleeves and specially designed distance mics taped to their wrists. Yeah. And they'd stand there with their hand up recording the whole show. What's interesting is that while they're very forward about letting her speak her mind about this, it doesn't feel like a point that the director's trying to make. It's just no, part of it's her not character. A major, yeah, it's just who she is. And in some ways, they kind of try to tie it into the, the her diva-esque behavior. Mm-hmm. That she is, I mean, that's the title of the movie, that they're saying she's a diva. And the thing is, the odd thing is, to me, that's the only diva-like behavior we see. We don't see her abusing anyone else in the show. We don't see her demanding a bowl of only green M&Ms uh, or anything. Yeah, some Somebody <laughs> somewhere probably wanted a bowl full of just green. <laughs> well, they taste different. You know there was a reason they did that, right? Yeah, because they wanted people yeah. to actually read through the entire list, yep. and if they that yep. way they knew if they had actually read it or not. Exactly, it was like Metallica but or somebody like that. It was it was it was a metal band. I think it, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's the odd thing we don't see her doing any of that, or making insane demands, or screaming at people. She's just that very pol- huh? Just that one thing about don't I don't want to yeah, record my voice. Yeah, that's her thing. She does not. She will not. Let her music be recorded. Even she's willing to destroy her career, apparently, over it. Because her her manager says, look, they're going to release a pirate copy. It's really going to damage you. We should, do, we should do it ourselves, or we should agree to it and, you know, pay, you know, get money for it. And she's like, no, I will not do it. Yeah, of course, there's Jules sitting there going, oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, I didn't make it. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't him. Apparently, someone else said. It was him. Um, I thought that no, it was totally Jules. That's why the Taiwanese are following him. They're the ones making all the demands. Oh, all right, okay. Uh, That's the part I didn't get. They were bluffing about actually having it yet. Yeah, I will say Mm. he has a really nice stereo setup. Oh, and we get to see a record store. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, back when a lot of people actually went there, because where else were you going to go? 
Well, the best part is, is you know, look at these walls and walls of record, two ninety nine, one ninety nine, two ninety nine. Oh. It's like, oh, yeah, those were the days, $35. <laughs> so, but yep, uh, yep. I don't know about you, but it's, oh, it's getting to be about that time. Do you think we should? Oh, there, there's one other one other note I oh, had. Oh, I'm just... sorry, we don't have time for you. Oh, sure. Oh. No, go ahead. We're going to suddenly stop the episode. <laughs> just that line, it's right at, right at the end when he's playing the recording for her. And oh, she right. says in this little girl way, I've never heard myself sing. Here's the thing that I was wondering if that was some sort of phobia or not phobia, but like, it's almost like it's a spell, right? That you have this voice and you can project and you can be amazing as long as you don't do this one thing. And so I had a question in my notes was, was her spell broken when she hears her own voice? I was thinking more it was the imposter syndrome, that thing like maybe I'm... Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am, and I don't want to find out. I guarantee she winced through the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because after all she heard were the flaws. Yep, that's that's what we do as creative people. Yeah. But uh, the other thing we do as creative people is come to a conclusion. Yeah. The finish. So, so Mike. Ah, I was ahead. No, you weren't. <laughs> Yes, I was. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. You're just re-editing the thing and making it sound like you came in first. I know it. I never would. Uh-huh. Lying. Lying. <laughs> oh, all right. What were you going to ask, Max, as if I, I did not know? I forget. Now you, as you said, you had seen this in the theater. Yeah. How's it hold up? I will say this. For a modern audience, it's slow. Okay? It is two hours and five, and... You're reading subtitles, which I think in general just sort of taxes us a little more because reading is hard. <laughs> but I still found it really interesting. I thought found it in its way very beautiful. There are those, again, those fantasy elements which almost all have to do with Garotish and Alba. And eventually with Cynthia herself. I even though it's not the Paris of lovers, it's not the Eiffel Tower, it is not the Louvre, it's this city with such character, everything doesn't fit, right? Every apartment yeah. you're in, you're like, yeah, they had to add a toilet because we didn't have those back then. So here's this broom <laughs> closet that's now a, yeah. a, a le toilette. Yeah. Um, the streets aren't straight. Well, actually, coming from Boston, it actually felt very yeah, much like... Yeah, we can't really point fingers there. <laughs> but everything feels very, very lived in. You can feel the weight of the centuries of mm -hmm. the people who've lived here, and they do not try to hide that. That's, in fact, part yep. of it. You can almost smell the cigarette smoke coming <laughs> off this film. Yeah. I still really like it. I think it does have a lot of style. I disagree that style was more important than content. I actually think the director used style to boost the content and make something that's more or less a fairly typical heist, not even a heist film, really, but sort of a heist film. Caper movie, film. almost. Yeah, caper yeah. movie, and made it somehow something kind of special, I yeah. think. What do you think? I, I, I really like it. Again, you're right. It is slower. Part of that, not just the times, French movies tend to be slower than American movies. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of very modern French movies. Maybe they've been corrupted also, but in general, French cinema tends to be more leisurely. I like the way this thing looks. I like the angles. I definitely think it's noir. Uh, I think the characters are really interesting. I enjoy it, even if some of it is kind of predictable. It's like when you see Mr. Big in the, in, in the car all blurred out. I'm going, oh, yeah, that's the police chief. 
Well, they don't really try to hide his. his yeah, they're not making a big long. thing out of it. It's not a mystery. This whole thing isn't supposed to be a mystery. That's not the point. Yeah, but I I think it still works, and uh, I you know I, for me it's a recommendation. Yeah, and it's only the second French film we've ever done. Do you remember the first one? Uh, uh, Frère Jacques the movie? No. I, it I was honestly, um, Deep House. Oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> And you wonder why I don't remember it. <laughs> it's so sad because we haven't been contacted in a long time. We were contacted yeah. by Deep House and by Rogue Warfare 3. Yep. And yep. Yep, we made poor Vince wa- watch Rogue Warfare 3. So We didn't force him to do it. <laughs> we just so. influenced him because we're influencers. Sure. All three people who listen to us. Thousand yep. people. Th- Three thousand, <clears throat> yes. Yeah, in case anyone's listening that we might want yeah but uh yeah we should go over that poll question before Let's we do that dig that hole any deeper yeah so what is your favorite foreign film subbed or dubbed which movie from outside hollywood transcends language and culture and just does it for you let us know and how do you do that well you do that by emailing us directly at us at maxmikemovies.com. We can have you put comments on our website at maxmikemovies.com where we have all of our episodes. Mostly it's Vince there, but occasionally we'll get old Cheese Boy to show up and a few yep. other people. Sometimes you just talk amongst yourselves and we just sit there and watch. It's, it's kind of nice, actually. Yeah. You could also give us comments on our Facebook page, which is Max Mike Movies. Give us comments about uh, various series you'd like to see us do, various films. We actually got some great suggestions from the question about film noir, where we might actually extend this series. We're still talking yeah, about that. Thanks I to think you. Eight movies won't be enough, and it's your fault. Yeah. Not fault. We're thankful. I'm sorry. Sorry. Your responsibility. <sighs> well, ever since Bumpty kicked him in the head, it's been like this. I uh, had jello today. Yes, you did, but you're not going to have it tomorrow, are you? <laughs> And then lastly, if you have a podcast app that you like very much, or if you have one that you deeply hate, we're probably on both of them. doesn't matter because we have no control over that. But what we do have control over is what is the next film in Walk the Dark Street, Max? Well, you're right. This film was tiring. After something like that, I need to sleep. In fact, an ordinary sleep won't do... I need a big sleep. Yeah, See you, what I did there? Yes, gonna, we're revisiting you're another take Philip. a big sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big sleep, which is, of course, what that refers to. Um, yes, we're going back to Philip Marlowe land, only this time we're going back to the originals. Probably the original. There might have been an earlier version that no one remembers, but this is Bogey and Bacall. Who and who? Bogey and Bacall. You know, uh, like, we could nope. have had it all, like Bogey and Bacall. Mm, nope. There's a deeper. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Enough. There are a couple of kids, uh, up-and-comers. I think they might actually go someplace. Well, one of them's a kid. <laughs> it, yeah. It's a, it, well, yeah. It's based on a Raymond Chandler daddy. novel. And uh, the screenplay was written by, believe it or not, William Faulkner. Why not? We'll, yeah, we'll have more to say about that. But uh, join us, won't you? Because... You know how to listen to a podcast, don't you? Just put your lips together and blow? (laughs) Well, speaking of blowing, uh, we'll we'll see you next week. (laughs) This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. (laughs) 